Story number one, The Old Halvish War, written by Deomek. Carl, a poor PhD student, leaned back in his chair. He hadn't slept for 72 hours. The words on his laptop blurred and his typing switched between German and English, forcing him to backspace and rewrite each sentence. Carl rubbed his eyes. Damn, he had four days left before the deadline, but that wasn't nearly enough time. There never was. He made himself look at the old machine that was the subject of his report. Built a thousand years ago, it was a perfect blend of alchemy, mechanical gears, and ruins. The letters were in old Germanic, but each one had an Alvish pictograph beside it. The machine, known as the Ruin Singer, had been used during the great human Alvish wars to communicate between the different species. It also made him despair, ever picking up a period of history of expertise. Frack history, he said slowly, Call edged closer to the Ruin Singer and copied the sweeping symbols inscribed around the edges. Frack magic and Frack elves. Not that he'd get the chance. After their defeat, the elves fled the earthen realms. Whatever that meant, most historians claimed that it was a dressed-up term for genocide, while others theorized that the elves had borrowed underground, or flown to outer space, or whatever. Either way, the elves were gone, and the only remnants were their technology, historical, first-hand accounts, and the occasional person who claimed to be one 125th elvish. At least, that was what Cole had thought before the Ruinslinger fled to life. The magical overlay shimmered, gears cranking and popping, as the machine brute-forced its way through ten centuries of disuse. Since Cole had spent the last two weeks researching and practically worshipping the Ruinslinger, he was able to make out the glowing glyphs that swirled in the air. Request meeting, renegotiate terms of surrender. Oh, hell... Once his incoherent babbling became understandable, Cole managed to explain what had happened in his department head, who promptly abandoned everything else on her schedule to send a frantic message to her colleagues. They soon discovered that their borrowed machine wasn't unique. All the ruined slingers in Europe had displayed the same message, as did the ruined slinger equivalents in India, China, and the Incan states, Ethiopia, and across the world. The space theory cannot be correct, no? asked Cole, wringling his hands. Do you think the elves have hidden for all this time? I doubt it, Dr. Green furrowed. It could be someone who found the magical frequency of the machines, someone who wants to play a sick joke. The frequency for every single one. He didn't bother to hide his skepticism. The accumulated stress, caffeine, and excitement made Manners sit at the bottom of his priority list. Dr. Green didn't respond too busy checking her email. I got a message from... She stopped and stared. From... who? The League of Nations, she mumbled, sinking slowly into her chair. Well, there goes my theory of it all being a bad joke. The League was in what awkward transition period from utter joke of an organization to competent and respected world government. It was leaning more towards the latter, but ten years ago it had been more respected, and twenty years ago it had been mostly ignored. So was the story of politics. As a secretary-general in the last year of her term, Minikshi Lee expected to spend the rest of her time bolstering the League's responsibilities and power. She had not expected to deal with elves, like all the other world leaders, except for the president of East Russia, who was a crackpot conspiracy theorist. She'd gone quickly through the stages of, is this a joke, to complete shock to, what the hell should we do? Renegotiation of terms, she said aloud. What in God's name were the terms? Her aide perked up from behind the laptop. Well, ma'am, considering the elven-human warring period spanning a century and all the continents, there's about a fifty different peace treaties, each unique to the civilization that negotiated it. Short version, please. Looking a little disappointed, the aide continued. There's two common conditions for each treaty, though. The elves complete retreat from the human realm and a strict promise to never intervene in our affairs and vice versa. And that's what they want to renegotiate, said Manakshi, frowning, assuming that the messages are actually from owls, which seems more and more likely. It's the only thing that makes sense. I can forward the memo with the details. 
Please do, Manakshi glanced down at her own screen. Actually, does that member have information on the start of the Elven Human Walls? I've been looking for an answer, but I can't find a single good explanation. That's because there isn't one, ma'am. It's one of the most contested facts in history. Oddly enough, not a single civilization has concrete reason or records about the start, though there are plenty of documentation about the middle bits. Would you like me to send to you the leading theories on that? Absolutely. If humans were about to renegotiate a millennial-old treaties with a species that they hadn't seen in just as long, with a species that probably wanted to come back to Earth from who knows where, humanity was going to need to be prepared. After two days of frantic collaboration, human had a more or less agreed to respond with the same message at the same time. The exception was the president of East Russia, but a partial coup had fixed that mess. No sane person wanted their country to be known for restarting the interspecies war. Which is how Carl found himself sitting in front of a ruined slinger as his department head counted down his seconds. Normally his advisor would be doing this, but his advisor was in China for something unrelated, leaving Carl the only one who could operate the machine. He'd typed in the message already, and now they were just waiting until the agreed time. Carl reread the sentence for a third time, making sure that he'd spelled it correctly. The finest linguistics of Alvin had been composed it, but despite its flowery and proper language, the message basically translates to, New phone? Who dis? He chuckled to himself, caused Dr. Green to give him a strange look. Alright, maybe that was a little oversimplified. In the message were also polite inquiries of where, when, and why. Two seconds, call. He nodded with a deep breath and put his finger on the glowing enter button. Thankfully, he didn't need to be a mage to operate this kind of ruinslinger, or else they'd be... Uh, what was the phrase? Up Crap Creek without a boat? Well, something like that. Magical talent was incredibly rare, and the percentage of the population who could use it dropped every year. Now, call tapped on the key, and the ruined slinger hummed with the light and magic as it transmitted the message to who knows where. All across the world, its cousins were doing the same. The response was prompt. Just an hour later, every single machine lit up like before, each with an identical message. According to the slightly longer response, the owls believed that not enough time had passed for the two species to communicate again. They requested a meeting with only five representatives, Specify that just two could be majors at one of three locations. Stonehenge in the United Kingdom, Rajam al-Hihiri in the Egyptian Empire, or the Casa Grande ruins in Mexico. The meeting would preferably happen in the next full moon, which was in a week. There was a slight bit of confusion as the linguists argued over whether it meant five people at each of the three places or five people at one, resulting in an improbably long email chain. The argument ended when someone pointed out that the particular ruin meant or and not and, causing the sheepish round of apologies and recounting of insults. The ending of that argument started a whole new one. Which place should be picked? A few countries were miffed at the owls choosing the meeting grounds to begin with, claiming that the humans should demand the location since they'd won the war. Others thought that this was a whole mess was a bad idea and that everyone should pretend that it didn't happen. The UQ and the Egyptian Empire and the Mexico were all varying levels of apprehensive and pleased at being chosen. In the end, the world agreed that the United Kingdom deserved the honor. Since it was an island, if anything went wrong, the mess should be easier to contain. The UQ wasn't as happy about its particular logic, but at least they got bragging rights. So, a week later, humanity wished that they were watching with bated breath since the truth was that the broadcast of the meeting would be delayed, something which irked a lot of people who were eager to see elves. But their irritation was a small price to pay to ensure that the elves wouldn't be offended by having their faces broadcast in every television screen and plastered across the internet. Instead, five hand-picked individuals stood in front of Stonehenge, keenly waiting what they thought were about to make history. Asha watched as a dome of green light enveloped the famous circle of rocks. She didn't need her magometer to know that this insane amount of magic was being used to do a spell. The hair on her arm stood up as her skin prickled, almost like someone was dunking her in ice water. 
Aisha checked the official reading with the magometer anyway. As expected, it ranged in the Giga Manor, enough to power the entirety of New York for a year. The only other mage in Incan named Kanyu exchanged looks with her. Asher could see the bracelets glowing as they absorbed the excess mana, and she hid a smile. While the elf's spell was extraordinarily wasteful, it seemed blasé to store such extra magic now. Her three colleagues felt nothing, of course, though the more sensitive ones may have noticed a bit of pressure. The soldier shifted in place, the academic stared wide-eyed, and the diplomat from the League simply checked her watch. Asha didn't blame her. The spell was taking an awful long time. How much longer, mumbled the diplomat, Sarah Warner of the Northern America, if Asha's memory was correct. My guess is a couple minutes, she answered. The intensity of the magic was peering out. It was now only Kilimana, but as Asha was overestimated the spell's length in just 30 seconds, the dome blinked out, leaving five individuals standing in the center, all boredom that she had with a slight show disappeared, and intense excitement took its place. Elves. They looked like the stories had said, long, tapered ears that stretched to the tip of their skull, skin ranging from silver green to deep blue and large doe-like eyes. Their metallic hair fell to their waist coiled in braids, and their cheekbones stuck out in a rigid arc. And despite the general oddness of their appearance, the elves were strangely beautiful. The middle one, tall and completely pale, stepped forward. Thank you for agreeing to meet with us, he said in a fluent Syrian-accented Arabic. Asha blinked. How in the world? It took a second for her to remember the briefing they had had. Historical reports claimed that the elves had been an instant translating spell. Curious, she switched her train of thought to Arabic to English and mid-sentence the owl's speech changed from Arabic to the posh BBC-style English. Does our great honor that our people may speak face to face again? The elf continued with the niceties, saying the whole bunch of nothing that translated into, Nice to meet you, and please don't shoot us. After that he finished, Sarah began her own version of the same speech, they all had heard her practice at a dozen times, so none of her fellow humans were really paying attention. Cunha was observing the faint shimmering around the stone pillars, that kind that signified a ward or shield. That interested her too. They'd fixed the floor decades ago, and their own magitek shields were completely clear. Interesting. Asha glanced at the other colleagues. Takeshi, the soldier, was scanning the five valves in the surroundings, hands clasped around his gun. And then Dr. Ease was still staring wide-eyed in disbelief. She hefted her gaze to the elves, and to her amusement, the other four weren't very focused on the speech either. One had her eyes closed in a look of concentration that Asha associated with sensing magic. The other three were staring at the floodlights around the rocks, and the asphalt roads that sandwiched the stone henge. Besides the cars that Asher's group had come in on, the roads were empty. The British government had blocked them off, of course. It had been the height of stupidity to let any random person stroll into the negotiations. Perhaps you'd like to move the meeting to somewhere nicer? Asked Sarah once she'd finished with her speech, patented diplomatic smile number three in place. It's a bit chilly, and we can accommodate you. Thank you, but we'd prefer to speak here, said the lead elf. What was the name that he'd said? Arinless? A bit miffed at being interrupted, Sarah downgraded her expression to diplomat smile number four. All right, that's fine. They prepared for this as well. Shall we start with the introductions? Quickly, all ten people gave their names and roles. Irenless was an elven lord and the leader of the delegation, while the other four were mages. Actually, Irene Liss was a mage, too. Sarah's smile dropped down to number five after hearing this. It seemed lacking in good faith for the elves to make requests and not follow them. Unlike humans, all elves were apparently magical, but still, it was the principle of the matter. So I hope that you're ready to give us some answers, Sarah said. Her tone was much terser than before. If you are willing to give them in return, the elf smiled, and Asher noticed that his canines were longer than the average human's. What made you contact us after all this time? Arinless was quiet for a moment. After all this time? 
Ah yes, as we mentioned in our message, we believe that our species are ready to engage and report once more, now that enough time has passed since the war. Nasha raised an eyebrow at this, and both Kanya and Takashi seemed unconvinced. Sarah didn't hide a disbelief either, but she didn't seem willing to press it. Now a question of her own, which ruler do you speak for? asked Aurelis. Despite the brisk night wind, he stood tall and unaffected. All of them, Sarah said, just as tall, though her fingers were rather pale from the cold. All of them? For the first time he seemed taken aback. Yes, I have full authority invested in me by the League of Nations. Low murmuring commenced between the other owls, but Asher couldn't understand a single word. Dr. Ease was listening, however, and she had a slight frown. And who do you speak for? Sarah asked. Everyone? A moment of hesitation. Only the winter court, said the elf. Lord Arillus, who is your current ruler? asked Dr. Ease, breaking the instructions to let the diplomat speak first. Sarah shot her a look which she ignored. Arillus's second silence was a little longer. Gwen Larail. Dr. Ease's frown grew, but before she could respond, Sarah cut back in. Anyway, let's get down to business, shall we? What was your purpose in contacting us? To reopen diplomatic relations to engage in trade, of course. Sarah nodded. And to return to this land, she asked sweetly. That can be discussed in time, Lady Sarah Warner. Arillus tilted his head, and his silver earrings jangled. Though her teeth lacked the same long canines, her smile was somehow just as intimidating as the elves. I'm sure it can be. While Alaris and Sarah continued to rephrase the same conversation in careful speech, the others were given nothing to do besides stand around awkwardly. They weren't a neat little semicircle now, but rather in clumps. The four non-diplomatic girls were bunched in the middle of Stonehenge, staves in hand, while the counterpart humans were all on the other sides. Do you think that we should talk to them? asked Asher. I know that they let Sarah handle it at first, but it's not at first anymore, is it? Cunha shrugged, fiddling with his bracelets. Maybe, but they do not seem willing to approach. His English, like Takashi's, was only the lightest of accents. It's for the best, mumbled Takeshi. He was standing the closest to Sarah, and he hadn't relaxed even a little. Well, it was his job to be the muscle. Well, one of them is approaching now, Dr. E said mildly. They all looked to Stonehenge to see one of the owls who at the border of the stones. He glanced nervously at them and placed a hand on the pillar. The other hand was still carved wooden staff. Takeshi tensed, eyeing the elf with distrust. Asha didn't feel any ambient magic, so she simply shrugged and stepped forward. Hello, she said, deciding that someone better act friendly. I don't think I caught your name the first time. The elf blinked. I am Netteran he said, the voice surprisingly low. You are one of the human mages, Asha. His eyes looked her up and down, and she was felt surprisingly self-conscious despite the very practical pantsuit. Maybe it was because he remembered her name while she hadn't. Yes, that's me. Netterin nodded. If I may ask, what are those contraptions on the black road over there? She stared at him for a second. You mean cars? He waited patiently for her to respond. Aya, uh, Asher glanced back at the other three, silently begging for help as she fumbled on how to describe them. They're moving vehicles like a carriage. If you wish not to reveal your secrets, you'll not take offense. He assured, clearly skeptical. It was only that we could not sense any magic from them, and we were uncertain to the purpose. She's serious, Dr. E stepped in and put her out of her misery. They really are like carriages that move without horses or magic, she said. We traveled in them. Without magic as well? Netterin's ears rose in a gesture that seemed to surprise. Interesting. What is their fuel? Does it matter? Takashi said sharply. The elf flinched, keeping his hand on the stone. Dr. E's grimaced but not protest her colleague's tone. I suppose not, admitted Netterin. Would you mind me asking more questions? Depends, Takashi frowned. But we'll do our best to answer, if we can, added Asher, raising her eyebrows at the soldier. Netterin nodded again, slower. What is the metal device that you have there, said Takashi. Takashi's frown deepened. A gun. Pardon? 
This time the three of them exchanged looks of varying confusion. A projectile weapon, said Takashi. Noturin edged closer to the rock, eyes firmly on the gun. There is no magic in it. Not right now, agreed Takashi. There is no magic in those lights either. Asha blinked. Of course there wasn't. Magitech was complicated and expensive, used mainly for the most cutting-edge machinery. It was so much cheaper and easier to use regular tech for simple things like lighting an area. She would know magic tech was her field of study. Kunya, who'd still been staring at the shimmer by the rocks of Stonehenge, spoke up. You have very powerful shields. There is much mana being pumped through them. It looks like an interlocking structure, but I'm not sure about the energy source. What are you using for it? Thank you. The owl stepped back. This has been an enlightening conversation. Netarin hurried back to the group and began murmuring again in Elvish. The second we ask any questions, muttered Kunya. Well, yours were really specific and just a little suspicious. Asha shook her head. What, like asking about the structure of the wards in any case of trouble? Despite his mock innocence, his smile broke through. She hadn't known it could happen, but Takashi's frown deepened even further. Careful what you say. Speaking of concern, did anyone notice how weird his questions were? asked Asha. It seems like he had no idea what a car or a gun were. Maybe his translating spell wasn't working. More likely their methods for transportation and war are different, said Dr. Ease with a thoughtful, half-focused expression. From the way she glanced between the elves and the two diplomats, it was obvious that she was following three conversations at once. Or maybe they're not as advanced as us, Takeshi said. After a thousand years, Asha raised both eyebrows. According to those reports that we were forced that the elves were in a better position than we were before the war. You would be surprised at how different technology advances in one civilization to the next, said Kunya darkly. Internal conflict, stagnation, different priorities. There is a hundred reasons why their civilization might lack what we think is common knowledge. There was an awkward pause as the conversation at that. No one knowing what to say to Kunya's friendly reminder until Dr. Ease broke it. Not by continuing their conversation, but interrupting Sarah's. Lord Arillus, you brought up the war again. Why did it start exactly? Do you know? Our own records are incomplete. Sarah's expression was furious and the elf stiffened. Still, he answered her. It, it is incomplete in our own archives, he said slowly, considering how long it has been. I doubt that, said Dr. Ease, calmer than the cloudless night sky above. You told me that your current ruler is Queen Lareal. We have records of her being the heiress to the Winter Throne. Records dating back a thousand years. Now, unless there's been a drastic change in lifespan, we know that owls live as long as 400 years. Her father was almost 350 years old when the war ended. If she's still ruling, that means something is off. Couldn't it be a ruler of the same name? asked Asha, unable to help herself. Dr. E shook her head. At times like this, it was easy to see why the hunched, mousy professor of Alvish had been chosen for this team. Elves consider it taboo to share a name, especially with the dead. It's right up there with direct lies. She gave the elf a look. Unless that has changed. Lord Arunless closed his eyes. It is not. Sir Queen Lareal has alive during the war and still rules, she pressed. Yes, he said finally, which means that you probably do know how the war started. He didn't respond and the other elves shifted in place and Asher could feel the low hum of magic gather in the stars. She glanced at Kunya, who shook his bracelets, cancelling the cloaking effect on their own magitech shield. The shimmering sprung up around them, and the elves drew back slightly. Kunya had military training, but Asher was the scientist mage. Nervously, she ran through a few combat spells she knew, hoping that it wouldn't come to fighting. Dr. Ease, I think that's enough, Sarah stated. You want to renegotiate the terms of surrender for a war we don't remember. It only seems fair that we know the cause. Dr. E stepped forward. Then Takashi moved to cover her. Do you know why? One of the other owls opened her mouth to protest, but Lord Arinless cut her off and raised a hand. Yes. Well, what is it then? It was for land, he said, smiling, as wars usually are. Was it really? You fought a simultaneous war on seven continents for land. Asher frowned. 
Wasn't that the reason the briefing had suggested that the elves wanted to return to this land? So it made sense that the land had caused the war in the first place. Why was Dr. E so certain that that wasn't the case? This has gotten out of hand, snapped Shara, Lorder unless I apologize for my colleague's behavior. She glanced at her to watch again. I suggest that we pause and take a break. Perhaps you'd like to move to another place, somewhere sheltered, where we can offer you refreshments. This is fine, Lord Arinless, without another word, turned and joined his fellow elves inside the Ring of Stonehenge. The Secretary-General knocked over a coffee in haste to hear the first update of the elf-human delegation. All the countries had squabbled over who'd be in on it, but they'd finally agreed on a batch that made no one happy. Ma'am, what's the report? said Arade, craning his neck to see the screen. He winced at the look she gave him, but he didn't take back these questions. Sarah Warner says that things are going... oddly, she frowned. There is apparently some inconsistencies with the elf story. They also seem completely ignorant of modern human society. At the very least, she can throw out one of the main concerns. It looks like the elves haven't been observing us like we'd feared. If anything, they are as in the dark as we are. That's strange, he said. I agree. I'll send you the report, make the changes I've noticed, summarize the rest, and send it to the person I've mentioned. She clasped her hands behind her back and stared mournfully at her coffee. Oh, and could you get someone to get me another cup? Of course, Hooray jumped straight to work. Thank the gods for his enthusiasm. He was always over the moon to get things done. As he left Monarchy, sighed and began reviewing the recordings of the meeting. A team was watching the live feed and they'd compiled the recording in the top ten highlights. Still, the worst part of the Zal's business was how helpless she felt. Though she could see everything going on, she wasn't the one that could do much. The elves had been very clear on wanting to meet with only five humans. In the end, it was up to them. They restarted the dialogue, starting with a mild and sleek-inducing topic of governmental structure. That backfired. Lord Arinless seemed scandalized by, of all things, democracy. You do what to your leaders? Elect them, said Sarah slowly. Your masses choose them. Yes, mostly. The elf's neon green eyes narrowed. Whatever happened to all your kings and queens? Various things, Dr. E said, shrugging. United Kingdom still has one, though she's only ceremonial. Most were either forced or abdicate, or had their monarchies dissolved, or were deposed. Generally speaking, everyone is equal under the eyes of the law. Everyone, said the scarred elf in the back. Curious, regardless of birth. Lord Arinless turned slowly, pinning the speaker with a glare that caused her to bow back and weigh. Everyone, Sarah confirmed. She pursed the lips, displeased. Don't you? We have a system of nobility, as it should be. A second has said his woe's words. The elf lord seemed to regret it. Especially, after all, the humans were rankled by his pronouncement. Of course, as humans, you have a free leave to organize yourselves as you wish, he added. Thank you for your generosity, muttered Cunha. Asha hid a yawn, coming out front of the full moon not dramatic and everything, but at the two in the morning and freezing cold. So, are we going to address the elephants in the room, said Dr. Urza, immediately ending everyone's drowsiness. What parts of the treaty do you want to change? Where did you all go and why did the war start? And how long has it been since the war ended for you? You're being very forward, said Arinless, frowned. Lady Warner, does she have the authority to speak as you do? She does, said Sarah, and I don't have any noble titles, thank you. She didn't even seem very happy that Dr. Urza's insistence to get the truth immediately, but she didn't say anything to stop her. With all due respect, are you going to answer my questions? You've been avoiding them. There were ten seconds of silence as Lord Lorinus closed his eyes again, deliberating. He opened them and ducked his head. Fine, I shall answer them in full. First, we wish to renegotiate the clause of neutrality. Asher had scratched her chin. So Dr. Urza had been right about the different reasons. In what way and why, asked Sarah. In our treaties with humanity, we agreed to leave this realm, and neither the humans nor ours would attempt to intervene in each other's internal affairs. He took in a deep, steadying breath, and Asher... And Asha could feel the magic like static stripped over her. We wish for you to end that neutrality because we seek your help. 
The winter court is under attack and we are desperate for assistance. This time the humans were the ones struck dumb. My lord, must we really grovel at there? protested an elf with pale green eyes and a braided crown of gold hair. Indeed we must. Lord Arinless kept a gaze on the human delegation, not even blinking. I see, said Sarah, recovering quickly, though her eyes were still wide. You mentioned that you left this realm. What does that mean? We went to another world, he said shortly. It is a process that requires an intense amount of magic, something we only did out of desperation. Because of your kind, said his deepening frown. Like another dimension, Asher asked. Lord Arinless tilted his head, listening to something for a moment. Indeed, that is the word. And now you're asking for our help, said Kunya, raising an eyebrow. Yes, and I have noticed that you did not say if you would help, he said, teeth gritted. We don't have the authority to commit to a war. Sarah was toying with her watch, and thought that put the casual front, she seemed more anxious by the minute. Especially when we don't know anything about the first one. Dr. Urza leaned forward like a wolf in pursuit of prey. Shall we discuss the present moment instead? Said Lord Arena, stepping back. Like the other elves, he hadn't walked past the ring on Stonehenge, and now he was drawing closer to the center. What had been a light curiosity, a fact shared around the cocktails, did you know what the historians aren't sure why we've ever fought the elves? Became a pressing questions. The elves were back, they wanted help, and the humans had no idea about any of it. I think we won't discuss that right now, Sarah said softly. Like Cunha said, you're asking for our help, I think it is best that we're completely honest with each other. Another elf, the same one who'd protested earlier, moved forward to the edge of Stonehenge. You want to know why? He spat. In the bright fluorescent light, his skin seemed to shine. Asher's major meter began to beep as the elf collected magic, and Kunya raised the shields higher. In response, Takashi raised his gun. Olesses, don't! Lord Arinless began. No, no, they asked. I will answer. Olesses's hands shook. We want to war because you killed our queen. You killed her and defiled her and stripped her skin, and then you cut off her head and paraded her around the kingdom, and we decided to kill you all for it. The humans were struck dumb for a second. What could someone say to that? What could someone say to a person who accused them of such a heinous crime, who had anger and rage about war that no human remembered, to a person who admitted to attempting genocide and now wanted their help? Asha didn't know, neither did Kunya or Sarah, or even Dr. Urza. Takashi was one who spoke. How long has it been since the war? He said, quiet. A hundred years. Olesis's voice cracked, the green magic gathering in his empty hand. I fought in it. I saw what you did to her. And, and none of you remember. None of you remember or even know. One of the other owls grabbed his hand. The magic dissipated. They pulled him away from the edge of the circle, speaking to him in a low, soft terms. How is that possible? murmured Sarah. How could time pass so differently? Like time dilation, said Asher, her mind spinning. Time passing differently from two different observers. I remember reading about a spell that... A sudden thought came to her. Was this intentional? Lord Arinless was still watching his fellow elves. It took him a few moments to answer, and when he spoke, he polished tones sounded defeated. Not like this. We had hoped for the opposite, smaller effect. We wanted more time to recover before we launched our counterattack. Ideally, a hundred years would pass for us and only ten would have passed for you. His laugh was bitter. Instead, for each decade we experienced a hundred years passed in your realm. Was it a miscast? asked Asher. No. Sabotage. A traitor. The Woodaby staff creaked under his grip. A half-elf named Merlin disrupted the spell as we finished it. We weren't sure what he'd done, but now we know. Merlin, the greatest mage in history whose work still made the foundation of magic studies. Everyone knew he'd died fighting the Yungles, and he'd been a half-elf. Why do you want our help? Sarah said finally, and why should we help you? Because the Lady of the Lake has overthrown three of the four courts, he looked away. 
Only winter is left, and if she defeats us, then she'll come for you. The conference room in Geneva was packed with delegates from all the nations. Menakshi Lee had a major headache as people began shouting to be heard. Someone else was futilely yelling, Decorum! with no effect. This is ridiculous, shouted the delegate from East Russia. How do we know this is not a trap? Maybe they are lying to us. It could all be lies. It seems like an awfully complicated lie for no good reason, the Northern American delegate drawled. What in the world could they gain from it? They want our help, clearly, but what better way to get it than a sob story, said the representative from the Incan states. A sob story where they admit to trying to kill all humans, the Northern American scoffed. Besides, you read the briefing, owls can't directly lie. Directly, and how do we know if this is true or not? That is from a thousand years ago. Even if it's true, they can still bend the truth. We can ask for more evidence. We don't have to commit now. I think you're forgetting a point that the Honorable Delegate from North America brought up. They admitted to attempted genocide. Why should we help them? That was a thousand years ago. None of us even remember it. No one alive does. We didn't even know they even tried until they told us. Besides, if we don't help the rebels, then we'll end up going to war anyway, and not on our terms. Oh, and where have we ever heard that argument before? That started another round of arguments with a dozen people all trying to get a word in. The Secretary General rubbed her forehead. This was going to be a long day. While the League of Nations was arguing about the future of human-elven relations, Dr. Erza was sitting in a smaller office room with an elf who had been left behind as a totally not a hostage. It had taken some begging and pleading on Dr. Erza's part, but she had finally gotten a few hours to interview him. Along with her recorder, Dr. Erza was accompanied by four guards and a grumpy-looking diplomat. The latter was there solely to ensure that she didn't traumatize their new elf friend. So, Netterin, how old are you? she asked. I'm a sentry and a quarter. His eyes darted around the empty room, lingering at the cheap plastic cloak on the wall. Dr. Urza's smile faded. You didn't fight in the war. No, no, I was a child during the end of it. Wonderful. Of course the elves had left the person who knew very little about the event that she was so desperate to learn about. Dr. Urza crossed the questions about battles, historical figures, and miscellaneous details. She cleared her throat and moved on to the next set of questions about Alvin society. So you're a mage. Are all elves mages? He shook his head. Most use magic, but only the most powerful get actual training. Netrun paused. May I ask questions of my own, Dr. Ezen? Ezra, she corrected. And certainly, often a researcher could learn a great deal about society from the questions they asked. What is that device you have there? He pointed at a camera mounted on the back. It's a camera. It records images and sounds to be played back. Here, let me show you. She ignored the grumpy mutters from the diplomat and showed Netter in her phone, playing the video of a cat getting stuck in a box. He laughed softly at the cat's antics, but his eyes were large with wonder. The second he realized how close he was to her, Netterin jerked back. Is it like a scrying bowl? he asked, trying to pretend that he hadn't almost fallen out of his chair. No, this has already happened, and I play it as many times as I want. To prove a point, she played it again. He gasped and leaned forward, peering at the screen. Is this a rare device? I don't sense any magic from it. Most people have one. This one is called a cell phone, by the way, and that's because it doesn't use magic. It just uses electricity. Netterin shook his head slowly. A dying, scrying box of lightning. Incredible. In a winter dialect of Alvish, she added softly. No wonder they won. To everyone else in the room, it was unintelligible, but to Dr. Ezra, knew all four kinds of Alvish and five additional dialects. Part of her itched to tell him all about the other things that the cell phone could do, but she held her tongue. She was here to learn about the elves and not vice versa. So you have control of a translation spell? She asked, amused doing her best to act like she hadn't understood. Yes, he blinked. In one of the first we learn, there are just so many kinds of Alvish that it's difficult to communicate amongst the courts without it. Netterin quickly changed the subject. How are mages treated by humans? 
Dr. Ezra tapped her pen against the paper, ignoring how he flinched at her movement. Well, mostly positively, it's really rare to have majors of any significant magical talent. So for most people who can use magic, it's a party trick. Something interesting, but not life-changing. Each country has their own society of majors that deals with apprenticeships and all that. But most people who want to study magic go to university route. Is there no difference between a high-born and low-born majors? He smiled. In most places, we don't have a higher or low-born at all. Sure, some people might claim noble titles, and money always helps, but we try not to judge people on their birth. Netrin gave a slow nod. You mentioned elections. Can one of your low-born people be chosen to ruler? His voice was soft and hesitant. Yes, the current secretary-general. She's like the leader of all humans was the daughter of a servant. He was quiet as he mused that over. Are you, um, um, a low-born? asked Dr. Urza. I am, he admitted. If it weren't for my magical talent, I would have never been brought along. And his birth was likely the reason that he'd been left behind. She'd leaned forward again, and he cringed back all the same. Netterin, why are you so scared of humans? He stared at her, and the diplomat began to make protesting sounds again. Netterin continued to stare at her for several more seconds before he responded. Why? repeated Netterin. Why am I scared? He took a deep breath and let it out. I am scared because I was told to fear your people since my birth. I am scared because I saw my mother killed by humans who used nothing more than rocks. For the first time, he raised his voice. I am scared because you defeated us when your people had an infant's grasp on magic and lived in mud huts. And now you humans have nine hundred years of additional time and knowledge beyond our comprehension. That is why I am scared. And he didn't say anything more. It took a month for humanity to decide. It would have taken longer, but Lord Arinless had given them a hard deadline. Bluntly, he told them that not to bother with responding past that time. By then, the Winter Court would be dead. The elves had synchronized the time of both realms so that travel would be possible. Unfortunately, that meant that a month was actually a month in both dimensions. And so, Cole had to break some studying from his exams to operate the Ruin Singer. He typed in a message again, and at the designated time sent it. A group of hundred volunteers consisting of League peacekeepers and soldiers from a dozen countries would go through the portals. They were to use their judgment in deciding how much and what kind of support would be given, and they would assist for exactly one month before reporting back. Humanity would help. Kunya shuddered. It felt like the air itself was drawing in magic. Filling his lungs and making his skin prickle, the elvish realm, he felt more magic than ever before. Enough to make him dizzy. He'd checked at readings. There was double the ambient here compared to Earth. Not that the others would notice. Kunya was one of the two mages who volunteered. He was also the only archmage, a fact that the other soldiers teased him mercilessly about. Even now, as they passed spiraling ice towers, as they traveled through to the heart of the Winter Realm, they couldn't help but comment. Gonna turn us into a frog, Master Wizardo, teased Sergeant Maria Tristan. Or maybe you can bring a fire or something. What about the place? Cunha simply sighed. I'll have the frog turning for the enemy. Keep your kinks to yourself, Sergeant, called one of them from the back. You seem way too keen about the transformation voodoo. Nah, don't you know, Maria here is most interested in hot elves. That's why she volunteered. Then her soldier from the North American military, like Maria, grinned. I used to share the barracks with her. She had more copies of Fifty Shades of Elves than the law should allow. Laughter echoed off the ice walls and Cunha chuckled with them. They all stopped with their commanding officer threatened to make them eat snow. Of course, but it had been fun while it lasted. The three owls leading the contingent hadn't reacted at all, but Cunha nearly jumped out of his skin when Netterin coughed to get his attention. The elf was so quiet that Cunha had forgotten all about him. Excuse me, said Netterin in a voice low. What is this about fifty elven shades? He glanced at Maria and frowned. Cunha felt an intense wave of second and first-hand embarrassment. 
It's a romance novel, he explained, resisting the urge to facepalm. It's a part of a famous series of, um, love stories. More like erotica. Between humans and owls. What? He said, his eyes widening. Is it allowed? Is it common? How many people read those? Cunha shrugged and turned to Sergeant Question. Tristan, how popular are those books? Um, it sold about a hundred million copies. She ducked under the low-hanging icicle, her boots crunching in the snow. More people saw the movies, I think. Look at her, all stats memorized too, snickered Lynn. Netrin mumbled something in Alvin, slowly shaking his head. How many humans live on Earth? Eight billion, give or take a couple million. Billion? Netrin looked ready to faint. Well, how many elves are there? asked Cunha. Netrin didn't answer. Wait up a sec, said the head peacekeeper, catching up to the elves in the front, as a veteran of thirty years, Adam Lorenzo had been in his fair share of conflict. Lord Arinalus had given them information about the opposing side before they'd entered the strange-ass dimension. In this situation, he's reminding him of this time in East Russia during the Civil War. Half the ladies' armies was being coerced either by magic or old-fashioned threats. The opposing side also relied heavily on their leader's direction. You said that the lady was heading towards the capital a few days ago, right? He said once he'd gotten their attention, and that she'd probably reached them at the same time as us. That is correct, Lord Arindus said, frowning. Adam grinned. Say, you don't happen to know all the entrances into the city, do you? They reached the capital city of the Winter Court and found that it was under siege as expected. A so-called Lady of the Lake hovered above the army of five thousand, lazily casting bolts of lightning and enormous ice walls. The magic wards enveloping the city were beginning to flicker under the bombardment of countless spells. Al, oh, we came at the real right time, huh? He muttered the soldier. Slowly, the lady turned, facing the small contingent of fifty-four. Her deep blue skin shimmered in the light, white markings covering her arms and face. Unlike the other elves they'd seen, she had a bright red hair that shone like a fire. Lord Arendless, she said loudly. Her voice projected across the entire battlefield. How low have you fallen, bringing them into our realm? Have you forgotten what they've done? You have done worse, Lord Arendless raised his staff, gathering the light of a blue orb at the tip. I do this because I must. The lady laughed. And you, humans, you have so little honor that you're willing to help them. What has he promised you? Wealth, power, the return of your realm's manor. Cunha's mind whirled at a comment. It took an enormous amount of magic to open the door to another dimension, but five elves had opened it twice in one month with no difficulty. More than that, the elves threw around manor with no concern for conservation. The air here was thick with magic, in contrast to earth, where fewer mages were born each year, and the environmental manor had been declining since recorded memory. Maybe it wasn't just a human overuse. Maybe... It was more than, and so you shall die. With a wave of her hand, she commanded the troops forward. Finish them quickly. It apparently turned out a pre-battle monologuing. His thoughts could wait. With a deep breath, he activated the wards, pumping as much magic as he could through the amplifier that he carried. The result was a shield five times more powerful than anything he made on Earth. Magic was so much easier to do here. The army of 5,000 crashed against the invisible wall, pushing against it with an uncoordinated grace. Alongside the physical assault, about half the army was bombarding the shield with spells. Kudya gritted his teeth. Despite his fellow mages' help, the amplifier and the extra magic, he wouldn't be able to keep it up for much longer. The amplifier was barely military-grade. No one wanted to give cutting-edge technology that could end up in the hands of a dubious allies or a genocidal elves. When's the signal? murmured one of the soldiers. They had their guns at the ready, but didn't fire. The Lady of the Lake finally turned her head away from the city to gaze at the small group of humans and owls that resisted the full force of her army. She raised her arm, gathering a huge burst of magic that would undoubtedly crush the head's shield, and was promptly shot in the head. The other half of the peacekeeping force had made it to the top of the city walls. There it is, shouted Sergeant Tristan. The fifty humans began shooting. 
the opposing army was pincered between two tiny human forces. The Lady of the Lake looked dazed, her personal shield visibly cracking, before she could recover. A hail of bullets laced the anti-magic coatings broke her shield completely. Her body shuddered and jerked, and like a stone, it fell. The effect was instantaneous. The lady's army stalled. Then half the soldiers turned, and half of the army tore itself apart. The secretary general clinked her glass of wine against Lord Arinalus's cup. Alvin enjoyed their drink too, and a victory wine tasted the sweetest. He is to continue success and peaceful relations between our people, said Menakshi. Lord Arinalus raised his glass in response and echoed her toast. And thank you for assisting us in our time of need, despite the past events in our history. As humans forget quite easily, she said, smiling, we have short cultural memories. In that case, it has been a blessing. Menakshi mused over the world-shaking events of the past two months. She'd been stunned upon hearing that the little peacekeeping force, one that had been sent to mainly observe, had defeated the great lady of the lake so handedly and with no casualties. Menakshi wasn't complaining, though. She was glad that the problem had been solved. But there was still another pressing issue. What now? she asked, leaning back. The lord raised a delicate eyebrow. You're asking me? Unsaid was the implication that his own opinion didn't matter. The human civilization now knew the power differential between both species. Menakshi admired the elf's handsome, although still strange, face and took another sip. Of course, you're the ones who contacted us. Do you still want to open diplomatic relations? We would. He merely swirled the wine in his cup, a look of wry amusement creeping over his face. Wonderful, I'm sure both of our people can gain from this exchange. The owls were more than the humans, except in one aspect. She set her glass down and smiled. Which reminds me, I heard from one of the mages that the elven realm was siphoning off all of our manor. Is that true? Yes, said the lord, not even bothering to deny the half-truths. But I'm sure that we could change that, though it might take some time. Do you find that acceptable? I'm positively over the moon, she replied, her tone drier than a Sahara desert. He stared. You did what? Right. She'd forgotten that he was using a translation spell. The effect was seamless, though it wasn't good enough to translate idioms. It's an expression, explained the Secretary General. It means that I'm overjoyed. Lord Arinus relaxed. I see. For a moment there I had assumed that you had accomplished yet another possibility. Not me personally, though we have had people land on the moon before. She smiled at his stunned expression. Their shock at mundane facts of humanity would never stop being entertaining. The elf began to laugh long and hard enough that tears were gathering at the corner of his eyes. Humans, he gasped as his laughter faded. Even after three hundred years, you never cease to surprise me. He looked at him with a mix of amusement and pride. I hope we will continue to surprise you in the years to come. The elf chuckled, and then the sound of defeated and sardonic and yet strangely hopeful. I do not doubt it for a second. End of story.